Welcome to Chisel Outdoors, stories of travel and outdoor living to inspire you where to go and inform you how to get there. Hey friends, today I'm talking to Zoe Lieb, my friend uh, from Utah who went to work in Mongolia with the Bankar Dog Project, a nonprofit restoration project using dogs or reintroducing these dogs uh, into the lifestyle of the shepherds who live out in Mongolian steppes for not only herding their livestock, but protecting them as well. Super fascinating to learn about. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Alex. Hey. Hey, welcome on. Hey, thanks. How you doing? I'm great. How are you? Doing good. So, everyone, this is Zoe Lieb. Is that, that's how you say it, correct? Yep. You got it. Yes. It's been a while because we never. <laughs> it's a funny last name too. It's a pretty funny last name. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so today we're going to be talking with Zoe about her experience in Mongolia. Zoe and I met out in Utah, what, three years ago now or so? Three years ago, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And back when we were working in wilderness therapy, which we'll be talking about on another episode, but um, we, we actually didn't work together. You started after me. I was just finishing at the time that you were starting. Yeah, yeah. You were still in like the wilderness therapy gang, mm-hmm. but you were moving on to bigger things. And I was, yeah, in a, a whole new like round of, of fresh wilderness therapy guides, um, learning the ropes. Yeah. Yep. And so that's how we met. But then I, rem- I still remember uh, there were days that I would go on. I, I had a habit of going to Barnes and Nobles on Sundays, typically just to read or reflect or like <laughs> plan out the rest of my week, try to be productive. And that's when you first told me about the this nonprofit you had started working with. Like you knew someone there and they'd asked you to help with grant writing. And yeah. 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 So at the time I was spending some of my off days working on grants for them, um, doing other like proposal writing and helping them just write certain aspects of their website, doing other just like writing tasks for them, um, trying to get some more money for the project. And uh, yeah, it had been kind of a while that I was just sort of picking away at that. Um, yeah. Before I actually started working for them full time. And this is the Bakar dog project. Yeah, it's called Mongolian Bunkar Dog Project. Um, and a bunkar is uh, just a type of dog native to Mongolia that is a livestock guardian dog. Livestock guardian. So sheep? Sorry. Are they, they, wait, sorry. Are they protecting sheep? Oh, yeah. Is it yeah. Sheep? Oh, sheep. Oh, sheep. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so mostly they protect sheep and goats, which are two of the most important um, you know, herded, herded animals in Mongolia. And a livestock guardian dog essentially lives among a herd and protects that herd from predation or from theft. Um, they can often identify if animals have diseases. Uh, they can do lots of amazing things to help people keep livestock safe. Um, yeah, and so they're different from a herding dog. They don't actually herd like a, a collie might do. Um, but yeah, they're a pretty special type of dog. So, um, yeah, so, so we were there and a big part of the project is providing these dogs to nomadic herders in Mongolia and also mentoring those herders for how to train the dogs in a very certain way to have the dogs perform that function properly, preventing predation on, on the herd. So how was it that you first got in touch with them and started to do uh, some of this grant writing and, and website work with them? Yeah, it's just kind of one of those um, funny, just kind of like networking things when it comes to science and conservation. Um, I think that the man who started the project, Bruce Elstrom, he started this project um, several years ago now. And he happened to know some of my faculty that taught me in my undergraduate at Connecticut uh, Connecticut College. And he'd given a TED Talk at um, Conn College a few years before that. So he knew these people. And one of my old advisors wrote me an email kind of being like, oh, ha ha, Zoe, wouldn't that be funny if you went to Mongolia? <laughs> You're like the only person who I would think would want to go there. Like, isn't this such a joke? 
And I was like, I want to go to Mongolia. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, yeah. And then maybe about a year and a half, um, two years later, I actually ended up going and, st- and starting working for them. Yeah. So that was like a long time of, you know, doing kind of other stuff for them, not really being quite ready to make that leap yet. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that's how, that's how I got connected to the project. And as you observed, you know, for a long time, it was sort of just like a hobby that I was just trying to help them. I thought it was a really great cause. Um, they had hired me when they first interviewed me two years before that. But at the time I just wasn't quite ready to like uproot my life and move to Mongolia. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so I didn't want them to forget me. So I kept trying to be useful. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. That is probably the single most important thing in networking a little bit of an aside, but just remaining relevant, remaining yeah. useful like that sage, sage advice right there for it any profession but probably especially when it's an organization that's half a world away would it would be easy yeah just be useful you know just just be useful um you know if you have a skill and you want someone to remember that you have that skill then you better be using it uh you better be showing them that you can actually do that and um yeah i think there's definitely something to be said for if you hear something that you think is cool and you're like, wow, I could really get behind that project, or I really believe in that cause, or I really like that that, you know, for me, it was that this organization was using something that was culturally relevant to the people living in Mongolia. Like the bunkar, this dog is an ancient symbol in this country. It's potentially one of the first domesticated types of dogs. Uh, oh, it has wow. so much like cultural symbolism, so much like traditional knowledge surrounds this dog, you know, all these wonderful things. And then on top of it, there's this pressing conservation problem of humans having conflict with wildlife, these humans not being able to protect their herd properly from, from predation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then their, their, their fallback plan for that is to poach these predator species that are really important to the ecosystem. And so what better management tool than something that the herders literally have in their history anyway? Um, so you're not, you're not kind of forcing them to do something against you know, what they think their best intentions are. You're not, you know, paying them off or doing something really expensive or really um, kind of Mm -hmm. a-cultural. Yeah. So I was like, wow, that really just caught my attention. And I was like, oh, I can't let this go. I have to stay involved, even though I can't maybe take up that job right now. Right. And um, yeah, you know, so you try to just stay useful. You try to just accumulate as much knowledge and information as you can. I think that's definitely a really, the reason I got to end up working overseas for so long was because I, sort of just held on and, and, and didn't let them forget me. So, yeah. So what was the, so you kind of described what the Bankar are, what their purpose is. What was sort of the impetus though for initiating this, this um, initiative to bring them back? Cause from what I remember you telling me before the, they were used traditionally, but that had kind of gone away. And so the director of the program was making the push to bring them, reintegrate and make, bring that tradition back of using these dogs to protect the herds in a eco-friendly manner. What, what was going on that created the situation that he said, Hey, we need to bring them back. Yes, exactly. So, so kind of several different factors and it's still a little unclear exactly why the dog stopped being used in such a, in its capacity, um, one aspect is that, you know, Mongolia has been through many big um, cultural and political changes over the last several hundred years. So there was a lot of a lot of conflicts between them and China, between them, China and Russia. Um, they were a Soviet. They weren't they weren't technically a Soviet country. They weren't actually taken over by the Soviet Union, but they were a communist country um, from, I think, roughly like the 20s until um, until 19, 1990, when they very abruptly became a. Uh, a, a democratic country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so through all those sort of cultural changes and influences, um, yeah, they really did. It kind of eroded a lot of aspects of their culture. Mm. So we don't 100% know exactly who started discouraging the use of the dog, but definitely one aspect of their conversion to communism was that all herding became this sort of collectivized um, system and that was sort of one approach of Soviet Union for kind of like taking the culture out of certain 
work activities that they saw as a means of production. Um, and actually, in a lot of ways, that was a good thing for Mongolians. That actually seems to have actually a lot of um, like stabilizing economic impacts. But at the same time, during that period of time, for a lot of different reasons, the dog sort of went out of use. And there were other approaches for keeping herds safe. Um, and then during this sort of reshuffling politically in Mongolia, when all these things changed in 1990, when they became democratic, um, yeah, so a lot of those a lot of those aspects didn't didn't return. So herders kind of go back to the way they used to be herding non-collectively, mm-hmm. and yet they still don't have this this protective um, technique any, anymore. Uh, and not to say anymore, certainly some people still know about Bunkar. There have been other projects to try to get Bunkar to become popular again in the country. Uh, not that they're unpopular. They're, they're actually, they're wildly popular. People think of them as a really, really valuable mm-hmm. dog. Um, but to get them to be utilized in that capacity again, um, it's really hard to, you know, just distribute dogs that are genetically viable as Bunkar that aren't like mixtures of other, other breeds by accident. Um, and also the herder needs, um, you know, needs certain resources to train the dog to act a certain way. And the dog has to be raised in sort of specific condition, conditions for it to behave a certain way as well. So that's where we come in. You know, we're, we're not reinventing the wheel here by any means. There's right. livestock guardian projects around the world that are helping people who use the land uh, have non-lethal methods of preventing predation. So that's essentially what the dog is. Um, it's one way that a herder or rancher or farmer, you know, this happens in the U.S., this happens in Europe, in Africa, using dogs in this capacity for preventing predation um, is something that lots of conservationists use now. Uh, trying to get um, people who, especially if, you ha- if they have a subsistence lifestyle, it's really difficult to tell someone who is, uh, has a subsistence lifestyle that they you know, can't kill a wolf because that wolf has been killing their lifestyle. Right. You know, just logically, that's not really fair. And also, you're not really going to get good results if you don't offer them a really solid and appealing uh, alternative. Um, so I think it's pretty obvious why. And for a lot of these herders, the dog is a really... Um, uh, like I said, a really powerful cultural symbol. And I think that kind of gives our project a lot of gravity that they see, they see the bunkar, they, they hear our explanation. We're not trying to get in their way. We're just trying to give them the tool that they need to do something that their culture already decided was a good idea. That's basically why I fell in love with the project in the first place. So as you were helping out, as you were learning more about the project and how it fit into every aspect of, well, for all those different reasons, economic um, subsistence of the people uh, tr- culturally, at what point did you finally say, you know what, yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move to Mongolia and, and be <laughs> there? Like, I mean, it's half a world away, you, cause, and you'd never been before, to Mongolia before, right? Yeah, no, I'd never been to Mongolia before. Um, I had never been to Asia, Central Asia, anywhere in that region whatsoever previously. Although I had, I'd done a lot of traveling, but not not to there. Um, yeah, I mean, really, it was just, it was total happenstance. You know, by then, I had started working in wilderness therapy. Tons of different jobs in the U.S., both science-related and not. Um, and, you know, I was just finally at a place where when when the time came and the um, the director of the project was um, looking for a new project manager and the previous project manager who was actually a friend of mine from from university um, he was getting ready to to leave as well you know it's not a very easy place to live mm-hmm. he was i think he was uh, had you know come up on how long he wanted to be in mongolia uh yeah and so around maybe it was like a september or something um bruce my my boss for a long time at the, by then um was like okay do you want to go to mongolia it's time we need, we need someone to go over there you know do you want to be that person um, and, uh, yeah, it was a bit of like a life reshuffle, mm-hmm. but I had really fallen in love with the project by then. It had been a while and I'd become very invested. Um, I had won some grant money for us. So I was feeling like really accomplished about it. Heck yeah. And exactly. So it was, um, kind of the perfect, the perfect time, even though it was a bit, well, okay. It was a bit inconvenient, but it was time to go. Um, yeah, I think all in all, November is not a great time to arrive <laughs> in Mongolia, which is when I ended up going. Um, I think I arrived, yeah, I think November 10th or 11th. And if, if any part of this show is for people looking for advice about going to Mongolia. Uh, not November, in November. 
not recommended. <laughs> so um, what what is it like yeah. in November? I mean, when it, the only yeah, it's, photos it's, I've it's, seen of Mongolia usually are from following your feed on Instagram and then the Bankar yeah. project, as you told me more about it. And I was like, oh, yeah. And so I've seen a few things, but the, I mean, most people don't go to Mongolia. Mongolia is like people aren't vacationing to Mongolia and posting lots and lots of photos like they are yeah. of Fiji yeah. and Thailand. So what what is it like being there in well, Mongolia? First, yeah, so I'll start with the great stuff because there's so many great things about Mongolia. And I think one thing that I um, really don't like is when a bunch of expats, you know, a bunch of like very privileged foreigners come to Mongolia and then go back home and rag on it for how like difficult it is. Mm. Um, you knew what you were getting yourself into. Or <laughs> you know, should have. You, you went to Mongolia. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's not, yeah, it's not the easiest place to exist, but especially in like the, sp- the spring and summer and autumn time, um, it's, uh, it's becoming really much more popular these days for people to vacation there. So a lot more like European people, U- Europeans go there for vacation. Um, tons there, um, increasingly more Australians and English people being tourists there. I think it's going to catch on for Americans too, but really, really beautiful. Getting side is super accessible. Yeah, it's getting so much easier that if you just turn up in the city, you can really easily get out to like amazing places, places you'll couldn't imagine existing any any other um, part of the world so i absolutely love it for that reason it's so easy to just get lost in the middle of nowhere it's that's so cool um you know the city ulaanbaatar the capital Mm -hmm. is i think only getting better you know if you are there for a while um i was kind of a lot of access like western style food if you so want it um you can have like mongolian food in restaurants that i a lot of the time it gets mm-hmm. a little old if you're in the countryside and have to only eat mongolian food for like days and days and days uh, so what but, what is um, that what what is the typical countryside mongolian dishes yeah so if you think about what mongolian what mongolian life is like it's you know completely a, a mirror image of the food the food is exactly what like what hurting is so it's lots of meat lots of dairy products um, this is a, might be a hard place to get by if you're lactose intolerant. <laughs> um, herders, you know, not not even just herders. Like Mongolian people, especially if they live in the countryside, they understand that foreigners might not like their food. They kind of expect you, I think, not to. Um, and I sort of was trying, you know, I always tried my best to eat and do as Mongolians were doing, but they are very tolerant people. So they're not going to like kick you out of their gear for not liking their milk tea. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So, um, yeah. So lots of, um, lots of milk products, some really interesting foods. Um, Butz is this like dumpling, this like meat dumpling kind of thing that's like steamed. And then Hosher is um, basically the same ingredients, but like a flat sort of like a flat, kind of pancake type thing with meat inside that's like fried Mm. they make some different noodle dishes um milk tea is uh, um um say if i i'm sure if mongolian is listening they're gonna be like oh my god that white girl what that is not how you say it yeah but i did my best so say is this sort of it's a bit hard to describe it's like a salty milk tea um it literally means say literally means milk tea Mm. and um i love it so anytime you visit any murderer's gear, you'll just like turn up at their gear. They don't know why you're there. They don't know who you are. They invite you inside. You sit down. Before anything is discussed, they give you a milk tea, like a bowl of milk tea. And oh my God, it's my, it's my favorite thing. Yeah. So I really love Sudetse. Um, that's sort of like the given. Anytime you're with a Mongolian person, you're going to have Sudetse. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of meat. Uh, they do serve... Like in their home to guests, they'll just often serve like a, a large like bowl of organ meat. And if you're, there's a lot of people there, mm-hmm. there's like a big bowl of like boiled, um, you know, uh, either meat like attached to bones or like organs. And um, which I really appreciate. I mean, you know, they're using all the animal and right. they see those parts as the best parts. So it's not like they're just like scraping by eating what they have to. Like, no, I mean, they've got plenty of food to eat, uh, but that's their favorite. So, um, not really my favorite, but I always tried to like participate. And, uh, I heard one of my Mongolian friends who I spent the most time with in the country. He, um, he was like, okay, so 
they're gonna they're gonna like start offering you things if you don't like start eating so like i recommend that you just start like, <laughs> you know start eating whatever's in front of you right away or else they're gonna pick their favorite pieces and start giving that to you and you're not gonna like what, what's their favorite <laughs> oh man um yeah so i definitely think that yeah mongolians I, I, the way I interpret it anyway, I don't want to put words in any Mongolian's mm. mouth, obviously, but I kind of think that if you try to, to play along and you try to participate, I think it, it does go a long way. Um, and uh, yeah. And yeah. And so their, their diet really does follow like seasonality. Mm-hmm. So for example, you know, they're not going to kill a large animal for food in the middle of the summertime because it's very difficult to refrigerate. Right. So you're probably more likely to have like sheep or goat in the summertime winter time it's more likely you would have like larger animal meat potentially um or also like dried meat comes up a lot um lots like butter type things um like yeah like this i'm not sure what it's called a yak butter concoction that is so delicious and you like spread it on bread and put like sugar on Mm. it um and it's that's yeah yeah, it's really good um yeah so it's yeah it's it's a good time um and you know mare's milk vodka is a is like a homemade kind of like alcohol um and is that one called, yeah, Arig? So it's kind of like a home distilled, like, vodka. It's like a very kind of, like, weak alcohol. Huh. And they, in the, in the wintertime, they'll mix that with, like, like really hot fat. So they'll, and they'll put it in a bowl. And it's like, so it's like this, like, kind of oily vodka that is really satisfying if you've been um, outside all day and you're really cold. Yeah. It's kind of exactly what you want. It sounds really gross. Everyone's like, oh, it sounds terrible. But actually, it's, like, really satisfying. Um, And it's not for alcoholics. You just drink, like, a little bit of it. And it's, like, very kind of warms you up from the inside. Um, Yeah. So, no, the food is a – everyone complains about the food. It is a a bit bland. They don't use a lot of spices. It's not very varied. Um, But I haven't been in Mongolia for maybe six months now. And I could really go for a boots. Like if someone has some boots right now, I would definitely. <laughs> you know yeah. that yeah. that I've never had it, but that sounds like having a really good bowl of ramen. Because growing mm. up, I I mean, all I'd ever had was like top ramen. It's just straight water. But then when you go to an actual good ramen restaurant, the broth itself is is fatty. It's very. It's almost creamy. I don't even know exactly how to describe it. Yeah. So that's the, yeah having never tasted butts that's kind of what comes to my mind and then like you said it's not yeah it's oily fatty yeah. it's yeah it sounds really exactly. good oh it's so satisfying it, it's wonderful the, the minute I, i'm going back to to mongolia this summer and the minute i get there the first meal i'll have oh yeah so i'll tell you this i'll tell you this one thing the first one, one of the times i came back into the airport um chingis Khan airport in ulaanbaatar i think i was i had flown from like western from western mongolia back to ulaanbaatar and there was um, this kid selling boots out of his backpack. <laughs> what? And yeah, yeah. And my co- my colleague was asking me, "Oh, like, are you hungry?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, I'm kind of hungry. I could go for some boots right now." And he's like, "Oh, well, I think I'm pretty sure that's what that kid is selling out of his backpack." And um, yeah, and so he was. And we like went over to him. We like noticed his backpack was like there was like some like steam coming out. I'm like, Whoa. "Oh, yeah, that's boots." Yeah, and so. He was like, yeah, so anyway, we just bought some boots out of, the, out of this. He must have been like 12 years old. I bought some boots out of his backpack. And then, you know, I, I've seen him that same airport like twice more now. And I've, I've, uh, um, I've bought boots from him at least on a second occasion. Maybe the last time I saw him, he was, he was out. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of one of those places where food is like everywhere. Um, it's not the greatest, but it is very satisfying. It's warm. And it will fill you up. And people sell out of backpacks in the airport. So That is so <laughs> super know. cool. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. So what was there was there any moment that after arriving in Mongolia you had to wonder did I did I just make like not necessarily a mistake but just sort of have this Oh yeah, like, like instantly, what instantly. what am I doing here? <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> you just stepped off the airport or stepped off the airplane and you're like, "Oh, wait a minute." Um I wouldn't say, I think that this is like one advantage of having already been traveling a lot previously and my life was already quite like in flux. Um, and I was pretty, I was pretty equipped for chaos. You know, I think okay. wilderness therapy, we, we are, we're like already equipped for like, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to be able to handle this, Yes, but I'm sure going to try <laughs> and I'll probably live. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah. So, um, not immediately, but, um, yeah. So the night I arrive, 
um, my the old like the, the outgoing project manager and then my long and then my Mongolian colleague. They pick me up from the airport, take me to this apartment that I'm going to be staying in, kind of this like single room, like sort of dingy apartment, but it's you know it's 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 good enough. It's just fine, mm-hmm. um, close to the city center, and uh, yeah. And in the morning, I wake up, and I realize a few things simultaneously. So first, I'm just trying to get my front door open, and I realize that I don't know how to operate the lock on my door, and I can't get my door open like from the inside. So I can't like get out of my apartment. Right. Whoa. While realizing this, I'm also realizing I don't know why I've noticed this. I'm not like really that crazy into like like safety and stuff. I'm not that like, um, oh, there's no fire alarms in here. But I did notice that there were no fire alarms in there. (laughs) (laughs) That that um, like the way that you turn my stove on is basically a propane tank that you like, like open a valve and then like put pull the match to the to the. Um, range mm-hmm. and like a huge like burst of flame will like come out and then it'll be on but like the top of the cabinets are like, all singed like clearly it's not a very good system. oh wow um so i'm noticing that i'm noticing the doors not open. like the wi-fi like, wi-fi is very accessible in mongolia i think a lot of people come expecting it to be like a total technological wasteland mm-hmm. absolutely not like wi-fi is like ubiquitous but i couldn't get on the wi-fi i've got no phone so I'm like trapped in my apartment and I don't know how to get out. <laughs> and, um, yeah. So, and like, it takes me a few minutes to really kind of calculate, no, I really can't get out of here. I really need to start <laughs> contemplating like climbing down the window. Um, yeah. So, and you know, you just start thinking, you, you kind of like start collecting all these little like details of like this fire alarm thing. Oh, my stove is really unsafe. And like, oh, I'm on the second story. I guess I could climb down, but like, that sounds really hard. And uh, yeah, these things kind of start swirling in your head. And you're like, oh my goodness, I'm in Mongolia. I'm stuck in an apartment <laughs> in Mongolia. No one's going to no, no one's gonna be waiting or looking for me for the next like day at least. They all think that I'm like asleep or settling in still. Like I, I'm going to be trapped here. Like what the heck? Um, yeah, then 20 minutes like fiddling with the lock, I eventually just realize that like what looks like a dial mm-hmm. is actually a slidable knob. And then I'm free. But it was, uh, yeah, it was... Um, that was like the first 20 minutes of being awake the first morning where I was like, Oh my goodness. Is this going to, am I going to be able to handle this? And, um, but yeah, no, of course, of course I did. There's a lot of challenging things about being there. Um, you know, just, yeah, uh, it surprised the things that work the same surprise, su- surprised me a lot. And the things that were different were just, you know, were, were super different, even figuring out where to buy my groceries from or, you know, how to just get the things that I needed. Um, was definitely like a, a steep learning curve mm-hmm. and uh yeah yeah so uh and also it was just it was really cold it was super cold and i think that, i think that sounds kind of silly you know i've been living in the uk for a few months now yeah. everyone like talks about the weather all the time um but yeah the, the cold really like takes a lot of energy out of you and i think people were really low energy like the other foreigners i knew and you kind of think that you're sick all the time mm-hmm. but you're just tired because it's tiring to be cold and outside um, and, uh, and then also not to be, um, you know, not the, the I think this is the, probably the worst part about winter time and not just for myself, but it's a real travesty for all Mongolian people who have to experience this. But, um, the city relies heavily on coal mm. for heating its, for, for everyone's ha- um, uh, heating and for really most, the, I don't know, I don't know, um, statistics on that exactly off the top of my head but it's um heavily used and the pollution is a you know a major major issue um i think everyone should go to mongolia maybe and experience that because it's like this is what an unsustainable industry does to people it's not some like far away problem of people polluting polluting another part of the world or Mm -hmm. this sort of like external like global problem um mongolia directly faces all these problems of industry you know essentially the coal industry uh, is allowing is kind of facilitating people being really really ill dying being very unhealthy being very uncomfortable and basically there's no escape from it right um, in the winter time it's inescapable um yeah and then also it, the effects of climate change are palpable in mongolia as well so it really being there does kind of bring all these all these um global issues they're not external issues there. They're very much personal and, and internal issues. Right. Cause you're able to, I'm assuming if everyone's using coal for heating 
and then in a city that you actually see smog, uh, possibly even see inversion because living in the States, I mean, we largely don't have that problem. You don't, you do- right. You almost never see real smog. Right. Yeah. It's no, smog was a, was a constant, um, once, once the weather, once it became uh, colder, you know, roughly around sometimes you know, like mid September, um, going into October, you know, it's, it's clear. It, it's a, it's a, it's a clear difference of summertime to wintertime. Um, you know, we had later on living there, I lived in a different apartment where you could see quite a good distance from our, our window mm-hmm. and you couldn't see certain buildings that were, you know, less than a block away from you. You couldn't see them through the smoke. Wow. So, um, and not even just that, it's, you know, you can, the, the uh, the rates of, of, uh, you know, the, the measurements for pollution are just well over any kind of, uh, an acceptable rate for what people should be should be inhaling mm-hmm. so yeah so it's a real problem you know i'm glad we I'm, I'm glad to touch on that i think that everyone should consider that um the way that the way that energy is made around the world you know perhaps you can chalk it up to mongolia not having developed its energy sector well enough but other countries are influencing how they produce their energy so um yeah so i think it's good for people to acknowledge and also one good thing about traveling to places like this I wouldn't necessarily yep. recommend being there wintertime for your health, but it is important to acknowledge that that is someone's day-to-day life. Yeah. Absolutely. And seeing the opportunity to help introduce new forms of technology to improve that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, the Mongolia, in my opinion, is like made for solar power. So um, <laughs> I'm not a solar power expert, but um, actually some, some people who I know who worked on a, a solar project there, um, uh, one of the major banks in Mongolia just finished this project of making a, a, a really massive um, uh, solar plant. And uh, I definitely encourage people to, to, look up, to look that up. Definitely a huge success story for Mongolia. Um, but yeah, so things, will, so things are changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's um, yeah, definitely a, a sad aspect of the country. Um, but then when you get to go to the countryside, that makes it so much better to go to the countryside because there's no pollution there. Um, so, so yeah. how about how much time working with the Bankard Dog Project were you spending out in the countryside in the field with the dogs, and then how much were you spending as a project manager in the city helping facilitate uh, that aspect of the organization? Yeah, it really varied. Um, so there were a few weeks in the winter time where it was really difficult to get to the countryside, just like weather conditions and road conditions. Um, but yeah, so it really varied. I mean, a lot of our countryside time was on trips. Like we would make interview trips to go to different parts of the country that you had to drive a really long distance or even fly to a different area to be able to access those herders. So um, yeah, so I guess I've been there multiple times now and it sort of varies each time that I've, that I've been. But I've made, you know, maybe four or five trips to, to South Gobi, this some center called Nomgon. Mm-hmm. And um, I've spent maybe like two, two and a half weeks now in, the, in this place called Uvs, this province all the way to the west. Um, and, and then our facility is in a national park called Hustai, a beautiful national park, um, about two and a half hours outside of the capital city. And there, you know, we would be there weekly at least. Um, so we'd either go for the day or we'd stay for a few nights. Uh, depending on if puppies were being born, if the dogs needed, you know, like vaccinations, if we were dropping off dog food, so like all different things. So we're really frequently interacting with the facility um, just in terms of like, like upkeep, managing that, getting them supplies. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, probably, maybe it wasn't exactly half and half in the wintertime. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, I guess I'll say 50, 50 overall. Um, and uh yeah, which was really amazing. I mean, that was that was like the best part about being out there um, was getting to be in the countryside. I mean, being in the city is fun too. Mm-hmm. Lots of English-speaking Mongolians. I had lots of friends who were from other countries. That was great, certainly. But I really felt like I was, you know, doing the work when I was in the countryside and actually collecting those interviews, checking on the dogs, making sure making sure they were healthy, the puppies were being born, um, and didn't have any issues and were were being you know the mothers were adapting well um we also keep several livestock at our facility as well because one aspect of raising the puppies is that they have to be with livestock Mm. from basically before the moment they're born there needs to be livestock um nearby 
So they, they basically have like the smell and experience of livestock their entire life. Mm-hmm. That's one aspect of, of the adaptation like, of getting them to be adapted to uh, be livestock guardians. Um, and also yeah, the interview trips were like so magical uh, that you get to, you know, really that's exactly how we met these herders. We already had a connection to their, their, um, the cooperative, like there's multiple different cooperatives that we work with. Mm-hmm. And so we already have the like, contact with these herders through their cooperatives. We try to follow whatever hierarchical structure their like community already adheres to. Um, but then when you go for the interviews, you really just go on and knock on someone's gear door. Gear is what is a yurt, but the real word for it is, is gear. Um, and, and for all yeah, those and who like, don't even know what a yurt is, it's like kind of like a tent house. <laughs> Cause I didn't know before Perfect. I went out to Utah. Yeah. Like, so a gear is a yurt. Oh, good. A yurt is a, is a, tent house for lack for simplicity yeah yeah it can be made, made lots of different ways but it's kind of like a semi-mobile um yeah it's kind of it has like a it's like a cylinder kind of like a short cylinder mm-hmm. with a cone on top um just google gear google gear everybody who's listening just <laughs> <laughs> um g-e-r um <laughs> they're really amazing and so they are they're, they're mobile so you know because the herders in mongolia are um semi-nomadic so the mm-hmm. fact that the, the gear can be moved is, is essential. Um, yeah, and and so we kind of just turn up in these people's houses, and I would have my Mongolian colleague with me to translate for me, and also to explain as a Mongolian himself what we were there for, who this crazy lady was, and their gear, and like why she, you know, <laughs> didn't, yeah, um, why why she had come to Mongolia, um, and what our project was doing. Um, and those are such amazing experiences, you know, inside everyone's home, there's a lot of similarities between all of these different herders homes. Um, but the things that were the same really stood out. Like everyone has this sort of like picture frame in the center of their house with photos of their family and, um, and kind of just like old photos and new photos and everyone in their family is represented and, um, different statues and kind of like a shrine typed, um, set up uh and there's always like a central fire that basically there's always like tea or food or something going on um and typically the woman of the house is like taking care of taking care of that and it is it is widely considered to be like a matriarchal culture mm-hmm. um and so even though like the the gender roles do seem quite divided a lot of the time like women can be herders as well um but mostly the men are the herders and the women um, take care of the home and, and the family and do all of these kind of like communal tasks as mm-hmm. well. Um, um, yeah. So it's, it, that, that was very interesting observing that, but, um, but yeah, I think that one great thing about traveling to Mongolia, uh, if people go there as tourists or if they go to work there in both, in both cases, it's, it's really not that hard to be able to go to the countryside and meet a family that lives in the countryside. Um, I think it's always good to like give them something to like, you know, if you're going to, if you're planning to like go stay with a family or if you're staying at a tourist camp, you know, in those cases, obviously you would, you would pay for it and compensate a family for their time. Um, Right. But they're very generous with like feeding, with feeding people and letting people experience their home. So I think that's a really amazing aspect of Mongolia. They're not, um, they're not like standoffish about meeting new people. I think if anything, they actually, at least the way that I interpreted the people that I met, they seemed interested in sharing what their life was like so so yeah definitely a a good aspect so what were some of the when you reflect on your time in mongolia what are some of the moments or experiences that stand out certainly when you first got there when you got to meet with the mongolians in their own homes and got to travel what are some of the other times moments meetings events that when you reflect back on and how long were you there again was it a was it a full year well i've been going there for about well when i stopped going there last july last july was my last trip so i had been going there for two years and i probably okay. maybe spent 14 months in total because it's certainly there's there's gaps you know there's times that i came back to the u.s for a long time um so yeah i probably i think i spent about 14 months there overall um, yeah, I mean, really like the highlight, like, oof, gosh, I mean, it's hard to like pick a few highlights, but I- I'll try to just pick one, pick one, one thing. Um, or a couple. Yeah. I mean, I got to go, <laughs> I got to go, um, one of my last trips there, I 
took a trip to this province called Uvs and its province capital is called Ulangom. Uh, and I got to go on this like camera trapping trip with a team from WWF World Wildlife Fund Wait, I... and camera trapping. Okay, yeah. 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 Okay. Exactly. I'll explain camera trapping, you know, very gentle on the animals. <laughs> um, yeah. Basically it's where you set up kind of like hidden cameras that are motion sensitive okay. and they can be video, but we only set up um, um, still photos. Mm-hmm. And so you set them up in areas that you, like based on your, your behavioral knowledge of the animal you're trying to capture, you'll set it up where you think that that animal might, might be going. Um, so we were looking for snow leopards. So wow. we were picking kind of like Rocky Mountain ridges, like mountain lion. I'm sorry, mountain lions. <laughs> um, snow leopards really like kind of walking on like ridge uh-huh. lines and they might take cover like below some rocks. They like sort of like little perch points. So um I was with this team um, from WWF and um, a team of Mongolians. And yeah, so they showed me tons of cool stuff about how to set up camera traps. I had never done that before. And my colleague and I were just there um, really because we were trying to just do like a reconnaissance trip of Uvs because we were hoping to partner with WWF in that area to um, to be placing dogs there in following years. Mm-hmm. Um, that ended up not working out. But even still, I ended up on this trip and it was just so gratifying to feel like it was my job to explore a new place, a new place to me for my job. Like that was my, I was being paid to do that. Like, wow. <laughs> like, I am, I'm learning. I'm in a brand new place. I am, you know, I, I need to be observant. I need to try to collect those information. I have to try to learn as much as I can and be as absorbent as I can. And I think it's kind of that feeling when you feel like you're being employed to do exactly what you're good and enjoy doing. You know, I'm, I can do this. I'm, I'm good at this. I can get along with these people. I can roll with this group of Mongolians and, and like be respectful and not be a burden. Mm-hmm. At least I hope I wasn't a burden, but I, I'm pretty sure I, I was, I was okay. <laughs> um, and, you know, I can like get the information I need for my work. And I can learn a new thing. Like learning how to do camera trapping is a super valuable tool. It's a really widely used tool or becoming more widely used um, in conservation biology. Um, yeah. And so I think that in combination with that, it was hard. Like it was, it was July. We went in, oh no, I'm sorry. It was um, in uh, May. And so it was, um, we went into this mountainous area, into this like highly protected area where a lot of snow leopards may or may not be living. Um, and it was so cold because <laughs> we, were, we were at a higher altitude than like the lower part of and then you know at a lower altitude so it was super super cold and I was like more or less prepared for that but not as yeah I was definitely not as prepared as I could have been so I had um it was really hard sleeping I was like yeah much than I thought it would be and um so it was tough but it was like wow I'm really here you know it was a real like visceral really like, physical experience and um yeah and definitely kind of like at the edge of my like comfort ability of my, of my like comfort zone yeah um and i think that that is like something that i don't think most of the time we're, we're in a position to choose the hard thing for ourselves and so those experiences really come when we just have to do them it's not up to us i can't like yep. call the trip off because i'm cold you know yep. um yeah and so i think that that is like so valuable and that's the kind of thing you don't get unless you, well, I guess you can get it in your home country, but I think leaving, I think really being somewhere where you're really out of your element, um, even though by this point I learned a lot about Mongolia, I was in a whole different region with all these people I didn't know. Um, my language skills are still very poor. I, I definitely still like, can't communicate fluently with a Mongolian person. Um, and yeah, and also just I relied a lot on my colleague who I have formed a wonderful relationship with. Um, um, Batbatar Tumbatar is a, uh, a, a Mongolian biologist uh, who was my colleague when I was working there. Um, and yeah, so you really come just like rely on the people who you need. And then you just try to be as helpful back to them as you can be. Because ultimately, especially if you're a Westerner and you don't have any of these skills or, you know, of course, I have some skills, but you're you're really out of your element. You right. need to just kind of surrender to the people who want and can help you. And then in return, you have to just be as useful to them as possible with what you can do. Um, I think that reciprocity is really important. Um, 
And just one thing I'll, I'll add to that is I think it is a bit of a problem when people, especially if they're just going as tourists, mm-hmm. but also it happens when people go as like volunteers or when they're working as well is um, that their travel ends up just being all about them. And it's great. They had these good experiences and I'm really happy that I had these experiences and so grateful. Um, and I don't think that I can say that the things that I've done through my work are equal to what Mongolia has given to me, has, you know, provided me in terms of experience and job skills and just personal development. Mm -hmm. But you have to at least, I think you need to try to have a real cold, hard look at what you're getting out of it and what you think you're giving back to it and accept those two things probably aren't equal. Um, Yeah. I think that's like a, you know, not to like bum yourself out, but it's, it's important to keep an eye on, um, you know, and examining like, yeah, who am I really traveling for and not kind of get just not kind of fall into the false belief. I think that you're somehow, you know, benefiting everyone around you by simply being in that country, you know, cause you probably aren't <laughs> <laughs> and it's also not there. It's also not there for your, for your entertainment. You know, it's, it's there for you to experience and you know, you should get that experience. But um, yeah, I think trying to go anywhere with it, with a, a mindset of, okay, I'm going to get a lot out of this. What small thing can I do? to make it, um, yeah, to, to try to even even the score, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, to give back to, well, and to have a real connection with the people who are in the place that you're visiting. Because it, exactly. if you're just, exactly. if you're just taking photos and then moving on to the next place to just take more photos, you, you may have had a great experience, but you didn't, without any sort of real human connection, all you have now is some pretty pictures. I think you really hit on it. Um, yeah. That like, you're not really connecting if you're like just about, you know, yeah, it's about the pictures or even if you've leveled up from that and you are just trying to have a great personal growth experience. Um, that's great too. But, you know, I think that, uh, you know, travel is only going to become more and more accessible and more and more, um, you know, easier to access as time goes on. Uh, it's not very expensive to fly almost anywhere. It's not that hard to get, um, you know, a tour group to take you anywhere you want to go. The easier it becomes, I think that puts more impetus on us as, you know, I mean, whether you have money or not, Mm -hmm. overall, being a Westerner, especially being an American, you know, I'm I'm speaking from an American perspective. We have some of the most powerful passports in the world. We have access to so many places. Um, And uh, yeah, so I think that you, you just need to, think carefully about why you're going certain places and to not, um, you know, not uh, lose sight of that you're in someone's home, you're in someone's country. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that as, as the years go on, I hope that I can do, you know, benefit Mongolia more. Mm-hmm. Some of my work is going to continue to be about Mongolia, but, um, but no, I think it's kind of an illusion to think that we have this like wonderful, like world changing role to play. Uh, at the end of the day, I think Mongolia is going to develop into a wonderful country that has, like, for example, a great energy system mm-hmm. and a sustainable herding method. Um, and I'm not under any like false pretense that that's because of me. I think I have a little a little nugget of help to contribute. But um, ultimately, those things are going to happen because Mongolia is a beautiful and strong um, country with lots of wonderful people working hard to uh, make it great. Um, who actually are from there. Yeah. So if anyone, if I, if I was going to go, if I called you up and said, Hey, Zoe, I'm planning my trip to to Mongolia. What do I need to know? What would be sort of a bullet list? Clearly don't go in November. And (laughs) what, what would be some of the other things that come to mind? Doesn't have to be any specific number, but what are some of the bullet list things to take with me? Uh, to consider places to go? Just what are the first several things that come to your mind when I tell you, hey, I'm, I'm planning, I'm actively planning a trip to go to Mongolia? Yeah. Um, yeah, great. So I think um, first you should consider, of course, you know, obviously your budget, you got to consider that. Um, you can totally go to Mongolia with an amazing tour, like a tour group. Um, there's great outfitters in Mongolia that are not very expensive and are, it's really fun to do that. And you can find really eco-friendly ones. That is totally one way to go. Um, and takes out a lot of the guesswork of trying to get to Mongolia. Because 
being there, like not having any Mongolian who is like on your like who's there to help you, um, is kind of tough. Um, that is an option, and I think it is a good option in, in a lot of ways. Uh, you're helping a small business, often a small business, like you know, like be moving along and making money, and that's that's great. Yep. Um, and in general, isn't that expensive? So that's not a terrible way to go. Um, yeah, or at least even I think it's even good to just do one of those things. If you're coming for like two weeks just going on a trip like that for like a few days. So someone can like start showing you the ropes, of like how to get around the city, what Mongolia is all about. I think that even just having like a short, like tourist trip could be really great if that's what you're into. Um, and if you want to go the total like solo route, not having any like professional help in that way, that also can totally work out. What you've got to bring is even if it's summertime, you still, and you want to have like, let's say you want to go like backpacking in um, Terelge National Park. If I, if I had, like, um, a week to spend in Mongolia, I would turn up in Ulaanbaatar. You know, there's not – you can, like, research your own guest house. Airbnb works there. You know, I'd spend a few days in Ulaanbaatar, like, checking that out, seeing what it's like. There's some cool palaces you can see, some monasteries you can check out um, that are really amazing and not that hard to self-guide. Um, uh, um, uh, oh, what's it called? Oh, my gosh. I'm going to be so embarrassed if I can't remember the name of this sit of this mountain <laughs> um um oh no okay anyway um there's an amazing mountain that takes like a few hours to hike like just outside the city so i would hit that up uh, just for like one like a day outdoor experience and then you can really easily just catch a bus to Terelge national park and it's just amazing and once you get into the park there's going to be lots of people who are going to try to like get you involved when they're like they're like paid tourist thing mm-hmm. But you can just avoid all of that. And it's an amazing park. And you're like passing like, parts of it. There's like herders who are actually like um, herding inside the park. So you'll still actually see like some Mongolians like living their their life, doing their thing. That's kind of cool. And you can get into like some super cool wilderness. There's still like forests there, even though lots of forests in Mongolia have become quite degraded. Um, so definitely like, go to Terelj. But you got to bring a good sleeping bag. Um, you're planning on like camping yourself. You have to bring, you know, just because it's, it's probably going to be warm. You never really know. It's like when it's going to be windy. Um, temperatures can all, it it can always be colder than you expect, especially if you're like hiking up, um, or to to higher altitude areas. So I would definitely recommend personally, I bring my, um, zero degree Fahrenheit bag Mm -hmm. with me. If I'm going, if I'm planning on camping any time other than like the complete middle of summer, um, just cause it's unpredictable. Um, so yeah, so I would come prepared with that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And there are maps for the area, but I definitely think like a GPS unit is a good idea because okay. it is quite easy to get lost. Um, you don't think that that's the case cause it's quite open. There's a lot of like open like planes and mm-hmm. stuff, but I think that a GPS is a great idea. Um, and uh yeah and also if you do like happen to like remember you know if this is like something in your budget as well you can find kind of inexpensive things if you're planning on meeting herders or, or, other, or other mongolians living in the countryside bringing like small gifts as tokens i think a really nice gesture as well and i think it kind of goes a long way to show that you like thought about you know turning up at someone's place or if you want to try to meet a mongolian person um offering them like a small gift and if they're offering to feed you, to give them a bit of money, like a, just a small amount of Mongolian money, I think goes a long way mm-hmm. to show that you like respect them and are like valuing their their time. Um, but yeah, gift giving is a very important aspect. Um, and also planning your trip to go during one of the, um, they have lots of festivals and lots of holidays. So I think trying to go during one of those like cultural events is also really valuable. So Natam is the like, the center, the, the like, kind of the middle of summer festival. Um, it's kind of crazy. It gets like a little crazy in the city, but if you get to the countryside and get yourself to the countryside town, um, it's not that hard to like catch a bus to get like farther off from the countryside. And there's tons of Nottam celebrations. And so if you go to a Nottam celebration, there is Mongolian wrestling, like a really beloved sport in the city, in the country, um, horse mm-hmm. racing, like just tons of like archery, like competitions. And you'll really kind of get like the countryside experience if you're if you try to go to a Nottingham festival. So um, so things like that. And also there's there's festivals celebrating all different aspects of Mongolian culture, like all times of year. So there's like an eagle festival out west. There's a, a yak festival. Um, I went to ice festival in this place called uh, Hovsgol 
in also well it's, it is in the winter time but um yeah so of course obviously it's like celebrating ice and this massive lake is is completely frozen so that that's amazing um yeah so i definitely would try to like plan your trip around what's going on and try to hit like a, a real cultural experience like that um because there's nothing like it it's there's nowhere else you're going to see like that concentration of like real like mongolian activities um going on in one place so like yeah Nottam would be like the time for that for sure that is fantastic I hope that answers your question. It's like, it really depends on what you're going that's for. That's true. You know? but <laughs> that, that's certainly true. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, how, what someone's budget is, whether they just want to like solo backpack from one city to another, or if they want mm-hmm. to uh, be, see more of the city life and take more tours. Um, but no, I certainly do appreciate. And I guess my last question to touch in. So you mentioned gift giving and that it is, a gesture of reciprocity and respect, especially when visiting people in their own homes out in the countryside and, you know, they're offering to feed you out of hospitality, what would be an appropriate type of gift to give someone in Mm. that instance? Yeah, that's a good question. It, um, you know, yeah, it's a little hard to answer. Um, so simply, um, I mean, of course, if it's like a part of a tour that you're on, like if you're already being like guided by someone and they're bringing you somewhere, um, you don't necessarily have to give them anything because you've already like paid for a tour in, in theory. Mm-hmm. Um, but even still, you know, um, I'm trying to think of a gift that I've, so like a lot of the time, if we're visiting herders that we know, these kind of like large bags of like candies um, with us and give it to like, give like some to the kids, but give kind of like a whole bag to the woman of the house. Um, and, you know, so, yeah, so they don't, it doesn't have to be expensive. Like, you know, that we kind of just do it out of a, as a gesture, um, you know, and that doesn't need to cost anything more than maybe like, you know, two to $5 it doesn't have to be very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it can even be less than that too. You know, it's like some of, the, some of these candy bags are, are not expensive in country. Um, you know, so I think it kind of depends on what you have the means for. Um, and I think, you know, I'll, I'll pr- try to bring little toys for children like little erasers or kind of like small little action figures or a little keychain, you know, they don't have to be elaborate, but I do think it is kind of like a nice gesture to make. Or also if you can find something that represents your country, um, I definitely like Mongolians, at least in my, my perception, like I said, I don't, I don't want to speak for Mongolians, mm-hmm. um, but I do think that there is like a lot of uh, good feelings about like, they, they love their flag. And I think kind of like flag representation means a lot to them. Like representations of things, um, I think has a lot of cultural value. So if you had like, like a symbol of your country, whatever your home country is, um, just as, as like a small token or even, um, you know, something representing uh, you is kind of a, a valuable thing. Or also it's really just, you know, bringing candy goes a long way. Bring some fruits. Like if you're coming from the city, bringing like a bag of oranges and like giving them some oranges. Um, uh, it's just kind of like a nice gesture and something that isn't that easy for them to access all the mm-hmm. time. Um, so I definitely would bring kind of like small food items like that. And also if we happen to know for a fact, the person we were visiting recently had a baby, we would often bring a larger gift that was like kind of baby oriented, like bring like a pack of diapers or bring them like some baby formula. You'd bring them some kind of baby oriented gift that people who we actually know and, right. you know, we know them well enough to know they just had a baby, but, um, yeah, so you try to bring something relevant, something either something that has a symbol, a symbolic meaning, or something somewhat useful. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for making the time. Yeah. To be on, to catch up, and to share Tell, your. Yeah, I hope I hope people go to my. Yeah, to share your experience because, yeah, it's not something I, I'm certain that's not a place that's on, high on people's uh, travel itinerary or travel uh, vision board but oh yeah well they should put it on there anyway yeah they should they should move it up the list absolutely it is a it's a wonderful country to go to yeah definitely. yeah seeing the photos you posted and especially of all the super cute puppies the bang car puppies yeah. <laughs> that... Oh, yeah, people should stop by the dog project exactly exactly when you're in mongolia come to the sky look us up um <laughs> absolutely and i will yeah, exactly. i will include links uh for that in the show notes so for anyone who's interested oh, and wants you. to lear- continue to learn more because there's only we can only scratch the surface within an hour conversation. Yeah. There's so much more to Mongolia and to trip planning and to the Bangkok dog project. So yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to share your experiences, your insights, 
uh, in Mongolia. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Zoe. See ya. See you. Thanks for listening. If you would like to be a guest on the show and share your stories, you can find the link in the show notes to apply or on our website, chiseloutdoors.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Pinterest and find all the gear and equipment you need for your next adventure on our site, chiseloutdoors.com. Cheers to your next adventure.